0: Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network and the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Heather Silber-Muhammad to the podcast to discuss her excellent new book, The New Americans? Question mark, immigration, Protest, and the Politics of Latino Identity. This book weaves together a number of different strands within the discipline of political science in context of the diverse Latino community in the United States. So for listeners. There's a great deal in this book that can teach the reader about social identity and citizenship, about social movements and protests, about immigration policy, and about the Latino population in the United States. I hope to dig into all of these areas with Heather today on the podcast, but first I will ask Heather to, f- to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this particular project.
1: Great, thank you, Lily. Thanks so much for having me today. Um, As you said, my book talks about the varying ways that protest and that immigration debate can contribute to Latinos' sense of belonging in the US. Um, And in the book, I'm especially focused on an unprecedented wave of protests that happened across the United States in the spring of 2006. And what happened that spring is that millions of Latinos across the United States mobilized and came out into the streets to protest against a very expansive, far-reaching immigration proposal that had passed the U.S. House of Representatives at the end of the previous calendar year. So I have both a personal and a professional interest in this topic. On the personal side, um, most of my family are immigrants. My dad and his family came to the U.S. from Cuba in 1960 during Castro's rise to power. My maternal grandmother and other relatives fled Eastern Europe during World War II. Um, So in my own life, I've always had this interest in both immigration and identity. Um, I have this complex background within my own family. And all of these questions about identity and the way that people think about themselves have always been swirling around, I'd say. Um, Professionally, before I decided to pursue my doctorate, I worked in Congress for six years. And the first three of those years, I was working in Senator Kennedy's Foreign Policy and Defense Office. I was in that office until August 2001, when I left to do a master's degree. Uh, And just a few weeks after I left, September 11th happened. And I remember being in my sister's apartment just outside of Miami and watching all of this unfold on television and thinking about how very strange it was to have been so actively engaged in politics, and then having this transformative moment happen, and I was just sort of a regular citizen watching it. Um, so I went on to get my master's degree, and then I went back to work in Congress for a few more years. This time I was working in the House of Representatives. And in late 2005, when the Simpson-Brenner bill passed the House, this was the piece of legislation against which the protests emerged in 2006. So I was working in Congress at the time when that piece of legislation happened. I was working for Congressman Marty Meehan, who at that point was sitting on the immigration subcommittee, so the relevant subcommittee that was considering immigration legislation in the House of Representatives. And having worked for Senator Kennedy, who was such a giant on immigration policy, but also was such a strong and persistent force for Bipartisan collaboration in this area, Uh, the contrast with what I was seeing in 2005 couldn't have been clearer. Um, At the national level, immigration policy had still more or less been a bipartisan issue until that point. Things had already switched in the states and they had started to switch a little bit at the national level. but, But in terms of comprehensive immigration reform, we really were seeing a bipartisan push happening nationally. Um, And what we saw in 2005 in the House of Representatives was this very rushed passage of a very partisan bill that was quite unique. Um, And then in early 2006, right before the protests happened, uh, my stepfather had passed away unexpectedly. I left Congress to go spend some extra time with my mom before starting my doctorate. And I was just getting settled back into Florida. Um, and the protests exploded. So here it was again, I had just been working in Congress and I leave and there's this major, major political moment, really sort of a watershed moment for Latino politics. And again, I just felt this irony of, of being in a place where I've been so deeply engaged in politics um, to once again, be mostly seeing it all from afar. So by the time that I started my doctoral work, this, the protests were still very much on my mind. And this book actually originated many, many years ago as my doctoral dissertation, though it's transformed quite a lot since then. Um, And working with my wonderful mentors in grad school, I started to develop different research ideas about Latino politics and immigration policy. And this project evolved, I would say, not only out of those interests, but also there was kind of a lucky combination of timing and data availability, Um, I started working, I was taking a statistics class. I started working with different data sets and I was looking for data that I could work with to focus on the Latino community. Um, And it was sort of uh, in the right place at the right time. This was around the time that the Latino National Survey was released. So the Latino National Survey, which is the primary data set that I use in the book, um, it had been many, many years in the making and by some of the greatest scholars in Latino politics, and just when I was looking to start working on this topic, um, there the data set was, and it was coinciding with the very protests that I had been thinking about. Um, oh, wow, so that's quite was
0: fortuitous.
1: Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> sort of the trajectory, all of these things that, that got me to that place. And then something that has sort of bothered me about the portrayal of the protests, both Um, by the press and also to some extent in the scholarship was this assumption that you would have protests and people would automatically start to feel a certain way. So in this case, people would automatically start to feel more Latino, more um, sort of different from from America. Um, There's this, this phrase in the literature, reactively rejecting an American identity. Um, this is sort of what we knew as social scientists, you have a situation of adversity and people come together around a shared identity. But this really didn't resonate with what I had seen and remembered from the 2006 protests, which we I'm sure we'll talk about more. But the images there were all about American flags, they were all about patriotism. And I remember sitting in the office of Marty West, who was my stats professor and is now at the Kennedy School. And we were I was saying, you know, I don't really think people would have felt more Latino after the protest. I think they might have felt more American. And just having this sense that, wait, the data is there. We can actually test this and see what was going on. So it really was this great and fortuitous coming together of different ideas and events all at the same time that really led to the unfolding of this project.
0: And it sounds, I mean, it sounds like it really was a kind of fortuitous experience for you in terms of your own experience in politics and then outside of politics, but mm-hmm. also having the, the sort of opportunity to dig into some data that hadn't previously been available to anybody. Um, so I, I want you to expand a little bit more, if you will, um, on the sort of different threads. And you've sort of touched on a lot of them already in explaining sort of how the, the project somewhat came together. But if you could talk to us a bit about the broad thesis of the book, which pivots on the particular case study, as you've already noted, of the 2006 national discussion around immigration reform, the bill that had passed the House of Representatives, um, and that, you know, you sort of talk about that as a historical inflection point. Um, mm-hmm. that that sort of your the rest of your research sort of rotates around and unpacks. So if you can just sort of explain to the listener a little bit more in depth about what that thesis is and the threads that you're sort of weaving together and also trying to tease apart.
1: Yeah, so I argue that political debate and protest can really have varying effects on the way that people see themselves and on their sense of belonging in a society. So as I was sort of getting at before, we think about or we tend to think about hostile political debate leading marginalized group members to feel more excluded. Um again reactively rejecting some sort of identity the, the identity of the majority group. Um and I demonstrate that this isn't always the case. So in 2006 as I've noted we saw this unprecedented wave of Latino protests. Most estimates are between 3.5 to 5 million people protesting across the United States. I've seen some estimates that suggest it could have been even, even higher. Um, so we saw millions of Latinos protesting across the United States in response to this piece of immigration legislation that was thought to be overly harsh. And... And it didn't happen right away, but over time, in response, this um, frame or message developed to protest that legislation that really emphasized patriotism. um, We are America. Today we march, tomorrow we vote. A number of organizations came together under the umbrella of the We Are America coalition. Um, So I am working with this national data set, the, the Latino National Survey, for most of the analysis. Um, and this the the data the interviewing for the survey coincided with this wave of protests so the survey was in the field from november 2005 to august 2006 and the protests happened basically right in the middle of that time um so and the, i look at differences in attitudes of people interviewed before and after the protests and in the inter in the immediate aftermath of the protests, I show that the debate and the message about being American actually influenced how some Latinos thought about themselves and also how they thought about what it means to be American. So we see some community members more likely to embrace this identity and more likely to think openly about an American identity, more likely to think that they might be included in this category. Um, in the social sciences, we focus a lot on the way that people's identities shape their attitudes about public policy and political behavior. Take and call this the identity to politics link. But particularly in American politics, there is somewhat less research done about essentially the inverse relationship, right? So how policies and political debate can influence people's identity. And I call this in the book, the politics to identity link. So a lot of what I'm thinking about in the book, is um, how that process happens, what are some of the circumstances that can lead to different outcomes.
0: And you inaugurate your initial analysis of what it means to be an American within the Latino community by discussing this idea of political incorporation. Um, And you talk about this early in the book. What does this mean in context of your research?
1: Um, I mean, I think there's so many definitions for political incorporation out there in the world, but um, the way that I think about it, and I think that it's, it's common to a lot of different definitions, is really this point where members of an excluded community start to see themselves as members of a society. So start to feel like um, they have claims to belonging within a within a society, and there's a growing body of scholarship out there. I guess I'd say the assumption used to be that this would happen naturally on its own. Um, people would naturally assimilate over time. There's a growing body of scholarship that starts to look at the role of the state and governmental policies in, in, in facilitating this process. And so I I see my work as sort of extending that to look at the role of public policy debate, social movement bo- mobilization, and framing as also important parts of the story.
0: And And that, I mean, and that's a lot of what you are, you know, sort of unpacking and and then weaving back together, I think, in the book in terms of sort of looking at social movement, what does the social movement theory say? what how does it actually work in this particular case? Um, and And so that moves into this realm that you also talk about throughout the book of identity and identity framing, which is an extension of political incorporation. And, you know, as somebody myself who works on questions of gender framing, expectations, and the inversion of those expectations, and especially in context of cultural consumption, um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about this idea of identity, especially since your work is so engaged so deeply with the diversity within the Hispanic population of the United States.
1: Just to make sure I understand what you're asking, thinking about the varying ways that Latinos can identify—is that what you? Yeah,
0: and and you know the ta- you you discuss also this question of framing, um, and how the the question of identity framing is really salient in terms of um, self perception and the shaping of self perception, mm-hmm. um, and you know and what you what you saw with regard to sort of the shifts in understanding, um, self-perception in terms of Latino identity, but also the sort of broader context of identity framing?
1: Yeah, sure. So when we think specifically about the Latino community, we think about, um, three primary identities. Of course, we know that people can identify in many different ways and in many different circumstances, but we tend to think about three different primary identities. So one would be with an individual's national origin, so Mexican or Puerto Rican or Cuban. Um, The second one would be with a a broader pan-ethnic identity, so thinking about the larger group, Hispanic or Latino being the the most common ones here. Um, And then finally, thinking about an American identity. And something that I look at in the book is the way that um, social movements have organized and have framed their message or crafted their message over time to emphasize different identities. So we saw the very earliest social movements in the earliest early 20th century in the United States really emphasizing this same message of being American. But what's interesting is The the population then was very, very different from what we saw in 2006. So then um, the We Are America or American patriotic message was really being used by middle-class Mexican-American citizens who were being denied the very, very basic rights of citizenship to serve, serve on a jury and other very basic things. And then we saw this transformation over time of identities being framed in different ways by different social movements. So we can think about the Chicano movement, the Puerto Rican nationalist, nationalist movement of the 1960s. Um, those organizations really took on um, a frame of cultural nationalism. So emphasizing um, Mexican pride, Chicano pride, Puerto Rican pride, um, and, and really difference, learning Spanish, um, really carving out this this idea of difference. Um, We saw this shift again in the mid nineties and this is sort of the, um, I think that the the movement of the nineties actually um, is sort of understudied uh, the national protests that happened in 1996, but the ideas behind it are what we very often think about in political science, which is this coming together of the Latino community around a pan-ethnic label. So in 1996, we saw the very first Latino protests happening in 19, on Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill, with thousands of people coming to march on the, on the mall in Washington, D.C., um, really emphasizing unity within the community. So not national origin, but coming together as a united. Um, and again, that is what we tend to think about now when we think about protests happening and what would happen within the Latino community um, in the event of discrimination or protests. And then I I talk about how we can really contrast that with with the message and the frame that emerged in 2006, that again, very much focused on American flags, the American identity, um, and really thinking about the the Latino claim to belonging in the United States. And we, again, can contrast that with the organizing in the early 20th century, where it was middle-class Mexican-American citizens, whereas here, the mantra of We Are America was really being extended to include undocumented immigrants, so the most marginalized of the Latino population.
0: And, and this is this is what I think, you know, your your work on the particular situation in 2006 with regard to these protests and the idea of, um, as you talk about the politics to identity or identity to politics, assertion um, or theory is most um, important to understand. And so can you can you talk a little bit about what you found in um in the the survey data itself, um and and you know what that told you about the particular um, understanding of individuals who are participating in or viewing and absorbing um, the protest in two thousand and six.
1: Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned before, when I was looking at the data, I did this, this quasi-experiment where I divided it into two groups. I divided it into the people who were interviewed um, before the protests, but really before the protests took on this We Are America frame, because we did see some early protests where people were carrying Mexican flags and then we saw this backlash in the media of people saying we really need to actually be um, showing and embracing a patriotic message. So I split the data based on sort of when that happened, which was really at the beginning of April. I use April 1st, 2006 as, as the cutoff date. And I, I so I compare the attitudes of people who were interviewed before and after that happened. And so what I find is I, I look at it, I do a comparison across a few different dimensions. So the first thing I look at is Whether or not people's attitudes will shift about immigration policy. We have this massive wave of protests happening, um, sort of uniting the Latino community around the issue of immigration. So, will we see people starting to feel more liberal about immigration policy, more accepting, um, in this case, of a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants? So, I look at the data to see whether or not that's shifted. And I find that, yes, um, as one might expect, people interviewed after this wave of protests are more likely to support this more liberal policy option. But at the same time, there is significant variation within the Latino community, and that variation doesn't disappear after the protests. So we still do see significantly varying attitudes within the Latino community even after this wave of protests. Um, and then I also look at whether or not people's attitudes change about this very fundamental question of what it means to be American. So, in order to be American, do you have to speak English? Do you have to be Christian? Do you have to be born in the United States? Um, so I test whether or not there are differences there, and I find that um, yes, after the protests, respondents do feel they have a slightly more open attitude about what it means to be American. So there's some sense that um, American can be a more open, um, more culturally diverse term that people, more people are able to access. And then finally I look at what I alluded to before is um, whether or not people feel differently about themselves after the protests. And I find that comparing comparable respondents before and after the protests that individuals interviewed after the protests who who have happened under this patriotic umbrella um, are more likely to self-identify as American and more likely to say that Latinos should change the blend. But again, I also see variation um, based on, on national origin and some other factors
0: and and that question of national origin you really dig into in um you know the chapter of the book on sort of the history especially the 20th century history of immigration but it's not really about historical numbers so much although you integrate obviously percentages and and sort of population numbers but it's also about you know the different communities the different distinct communities within the broader Latino community in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about those communities and how policy and, you know, identity frames and politics impact those, those communities in distinct ways? Cause I mean, as you talked about already, there's, there's generally an understanding of Mexican Americans, Cuban Americans, Um, and Hispanic Americans, Um, but that within those communities, obviously, there are Salvadorian Americans and um, Dominican Americans. Can you talk a little bit about those communities that you really do a great job sort of thinking about in context of your book?
1: Thank you. Um, I will. I'll say it's. it will be very difficult to sort of briefly capture the range of, of diversity, but um, I'll, I'll go ahead and mention some of the, the high-level points. So I think Mexican-Americans are what people most commonly think about when we think about Latinos in the United States. They are by far the largest share of the Latino community, um, about two-thirds of the Latino community. And within this community in particular, we see a tremendous amount of variation by um, immigrant generation. So some people whose ancestors have been in the US or land that used to belong to Mexico for generations and other people who are just arriving now. So we see a lot of variation within this community in terms of um, how long people have been in the United States um, and also, their attitudes, right? So the longer people have been in the United States over time, we know from existing research, the more their attitudes start to look like that the um, and then we also see Lisa Garcia-Bedoya talks a lot about this concept of selective dissociation. So when immigrat- immigration issues come to the foray, we see more established community members sometimes distancing themselves from newer arrivals. So um, we see very different attitudes about immigration policy, or we traditionally have, among established community members versus newer arrivals. And those differences are especially stark within the Mexican community because that community is so large and has been in the United States for so long. Um, I also talk about the Puerto Rican community in the United States. So, Puerto Ricans and Cubans have basically a different perspective on immigration in ways that often connects to their own status. So Puerto Ricans, regardless of whether they're born on the island or on the mainland, um, are automatically born as U.S. citizens. So um, for most Puerto Ricans, immigration is less of a central concern. Um, A lot of Puerto Rican politics actually tends to be more focused on what's happening on the island of Puerto Rico. So whether or not Puerto Rico should become a state, whether it should maintain its current commonwealth status. And we're seeing this even as recently as the last few weeks. We um, have seen the Puerto Rican politics very much focused on that. So we we tend to think about Puerto Rican politics as more focused on on the island for various reasons. Um, When we look at the Cuban community, the Cuban-American community, um, because of the Cold War context of Cuba, uh, this community has also been treated very, very, differently um, up until the very end of president obama's term, when he when he changed this policy cubans have received had received preferential immigration status in the united states for decades basically from 1960 until the very very beginning of this year they've had varying ways of getting preferential immigration status um, most recently was the wet foot dry foot policy so if a a Cuban was rescued at sea, they would be sent back to Cuba, but if they made it all the way to shore, they could stay legally in the United States. And so, again, this has made immigration policy a less central issue to the Cuban community as it has been to other Latino groups. Um, And then another amazing thing about the Latino National Survey is that before this survey, we really didn't have very large data sources or very good data sources about um the salvadoran and dominican community where there are large diverse samples from those communities Um, these are two of the fastest growing latino communities in the united states so we used to think about the big three of mexicans puerto ricans and cubans and now we're expanding that a little bit to include salvadorans and dominicans And for the first time, we have really good samples of those communities as well. So even beyond the coincidence with the protests, this data set enables us to really look at attitudes and and distinct attitudes within those communities. So Dominicans who have primarily come to the Northeastern part of the United States and have especially recently been largely economic migrants and then Salvadorans who um, have a much more challenging history Many tens of thousands came to the United States, um, fleeing the country from a very violent civil war in which the U.S. was um, working with the government. And so we just see really a lot of a lot of differences within these communities, their attitudes about immigration. We also have within the Salvadoran community, there's a very large undocumented population population. so, just the ways in which immigration may or may not be connected to these different communities, um, I argue, helps to influence their attitudes. And I, th- I mean, I think this this builds on again the work of others. Sergio Walt has this idea of a political suitcase, which I really like. That people come to the United States um, not only with their regular suitcase, but also with their political suitcase of attitudes and ideas about what was happening in their home country, and that shapes and influences the way in which they understand and interpret politics in the U.S. as well.
0: And and I thought that that chapter in particular was really – amazing in terms of educating me, and I would assume probably some others, because I didn't know a lot of the particularities beyond, you know, as you say, the big three, um, Mexican Americans, Puerto Rican Americans, and Cuban Americans, um, but also to tease out some of the differences in terms of not only experience, but political identification and engagement. Um, one of the topics that you sort of integrate throughout the the research, um, and that I'm particularly interested in, given my own research, is the role of gender um, in terms of understanding your identity um, in in sort of the United States um, as potentially an outsider or in the case of a lot of um, Latino Americans or Latina Americans, um, insiders because of the fact that they've been here since the 1800s when Mexico um, and the United States had a little dispute over places like Texas. Um, Mm -hmm. And so can you talk a little bit about both the pushing and pulling on the incorporation theory with regard to gender?
1: yeah I, I so I, I have this this chapter that focuses a lot on gender in the book, and I also published an article separately from the book about um, the complex role of gender and all of this, right? So we tend to think about women. um anthropology literature talks a lot about women as being sort of the purveyors of culture. Um, women being the ones who ground and shape and influence um culture and a family um, and and we find that um yes I, I find that yes looking at this data latino latinas so latino women um are more likely to want to maintain a distinct a distinct hispanic culture um, but we also see that it's often the women who are becoming more involved in u.s politics so um often at a very small scale. So it's commonly the woman who is enrolling children in school who um, starts to become aware of what's going on because of the education system. Um, And, and, and something that I find, I I don't discuss this in the book, but I I look at an article is actually a stronger relationship among Latino men between identifying as American and participating politically. So we see this happening more among men than women. And I guess I should preface this by saying one thing, one reason that I find identity really fascinating is because we do see this relationship between how people think about themselves and whether or not they participate, right? So having this sense of belonging and feeling like you are a member of society, we often think about as a prerequisite for political participation, for wanting to vote for wanting to, be engaged in, in politics. Um, and so, this is something that I start to tease out in the book and in the article. Um, and it's something that I would like to continue to think about is why we see this difference, why we see men, um, why we see identi- identity playing a bigger role for men than it does for women.
0: And we do have examples of, you know, Cuban-Americans who are elected in the Senate. We've got a couple, I believe, Um, Mm -hmm. and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. Um, And I know we've had a number in the House. We've had pairs of siblings in the House um, Mm -hmm. over the years who are Cuban-Americans. So I'd also like to ask you a little bit about... um, you know the experience you had writing this book. and as you note, know, it it started sometime back um in your in your doctoral days. Um, but you published this book um, with an epilogue, um and in part because of the rise of Trump, um you know, two years ago now, when he mm-hmm. made his first announcement in the increasingly polarizing debate around immigration. That came to dominate so much of the 2016 campaign cycle, and you know, I am sure, given the the sort of long period of process that most academic p- presses have, that a lot of this um, was was in print essentially um, while all of that was going on. But can you talk a little bit about um, you know your research and your work that you that you were doing? And then what you saw unfolding in front of us in terms of the 2016 campaign and the flashpoint that immigration became um, in context of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when I did the first round of edits, I I kind of thought, well, I don't even think I should touch the conclusion right now because who knows what's going to be happening by the time that I get the page proofs. But I did sort of do my best at, at speculating and, um, you know, they didn't want to make too many changes in the proofs. And even the proofs were already all, all done by the time that um, we had, what I would say for many of us was this surprising election outcome. Um, so I, I guess I would say um, thinking about sort of where we were with the election and also where we are today. I mean, this is obviously a very, very different political moment than what I was writing about in 2006. I think there was so much more optimism in 2006. So when we think about the policy that people were protesting in 2006, um, much of that is, is is consistent with the rhetoric that we see from, from Donald Trump. We've seen from him on the campaign trail. We see today, um, he in many ways extends some of the policies that goes beyond some of the policies that people were protesting back then. And I guess I'll say, so for one thing that I really do like to emphasize, and I said this in the beginning, when I when I talk about immigration policy is is that there really is this bipartisan tradition in the United States. I think it's important, especially for students to understand um, how different today's politics are from from where we were in the earlier waves of comprehensive immigration reform where we had Ronald Reagan fighting for the major reforms that happened in the 80s. We've had George W. Bush advocating strongly for immigration reform um, in in the early 2000s. And so I think just one takeaway that I, I think is important to have is how very different today's politics are. I also think that today's politics sort of show again i think protest is so important and, and compelling today and is, is happening in so many different ways and in so many different circumstances um i think again that the sense of optimism that i was was had when writing about 2006 is very different from the politics and the experiences of the latino community today so thinking about both the rhetoric and the expansiveness of um, immigration arrests that are going on today. I think that there's a very, very real fear within the Latino community that um, whereas in 2006, we saw people who even were undocumented, feeling comfortable protesting and claiming themselves as American citizenship, as American citizens. Today, we see US citizens that are fearful. Right. So every day I think I see another news story about um, lower rates of domestic violence being reported within the Latino community in certain places or lower rates of accidents being reported. Um, I have a a cousin in Oregon who works um, for a health clinic clinic. For runs a health clinic that helps migrant workers and she said since the election people just aren't showing up for their appointments um, even when they're out in the fields, people aren't showing up for their appointments which is consistent with what other research has been showing um, that people when they are know someone who's been deported or feel that they're being threatened that um they're even less likely to feel comfortable talking to a doctor or addressing medical issues. It seems Again, like there's a
0: big shift that's mm-hmm. that's been going on in terms of um, the issues of around protests that you talk about in the book, that that individuals felt comfortable protesting in 2006, that they would that they would go to rallies and that they would, you know, wave American flags and they would embrace being American. Whereas at this point, there are lots of protests but that there are parts of the population that don't feel comfortable at the at those protests, and then they don't feel comfortable in lots of other parts of their lives.
1: Absolutely. So even doing much, many more basic things that to maintain their own health and safety. Right? So I think it's a very very different different world that we're living in today.
0: And and so in terms of your you know your analysis of uh, protest politics, which you talk about um in terms of the social movement around immigration um w- we've seen a kind of inversion of of sort of protests around immigration at the in 2006 there was protests that were in favor of um more liberal immigration policies and what we've seen and i think it's you know can be also pegged in part to the economic downturn that there have been protests on the other side against immigration? Um, and and to some degree, has there been a broad sort of lesson possibly with regard to the shift? I mean, you talk about the fact that there's less, certainly less optimism um, or positivity. Um, but in terms of social movement itself, what do you see as some of the you know, sort of possible remnants of the 2006 protests and social movements that we can possibly learn from at this point? So
1: I guess I would say, I mean, I, I haven't studied whether there's more anti-immigrant protests, like protests per se happening right. today than than there were then. Certainly, I think that the rhetoric is becoming more increasingly acceptable. Um I think one thing that I continue to think about, and I talk a little bit uh, a little bit about in the epilogue of the book, is whether we will see more increased unity within the Latino population. So again, in the book, I talk about some of um, the limitations, some of the differences in Latino attitudes toward immigration policy. I think um, as the rhetoric about immigration, immigrants, Mexicans, as that becomes more personal and more expansive, I think that we do see the Latino community, by most accounts, coming together a bit more um, when we look at public opinion polls about Donald Trump and we look at other things. We do see um, more cohesiveness within the Latino community than we had seen prior.
0: And in that regard, it, it brings up another point that you raise in the book that you, that you dive into um, that you and others refer to as the immigration paradox. Um, and, and to some degree, you also follow that up with not only talking about the immigration paradox, but also the variation, as you note, um, in terms of immigration as a policy issue, um, and, and the salience that it has with regard to the Latino community. Can you talk a little bit about the immigration paradox itself?
1: Yeah, so when, when I talk about the immigration paradox, what I'm what I'm getting at is this idea. There's this general sense that immigration is is all that matters to Latino voters. When in fact, over probably decades now of surveys, immigration comes third or fourth or fifth on the list of Latino concerns. Right. So, um, like most Americans, we see within the Latino community typically the first few priorities are education, healthcare. Um, the economy. So those sorts of things tend to be ranked. Even in 2016, I was just looking at um, one of the Pew election surveys focusing on the Latino population. I think immigration was ranked as number five on the list of concerns. Um, So over time, consistently, Latinos don't say that they prioritize immigration policy, but we see this really unique dynamic around immigration politics, right? So we see this massive wave of protests that happened in 2006 around immigration specifically. And there have been um, Latino efforts mobilizing around healthcare more recently, for instance, but certainly not on the scale of what we saw by any means in 2006. So even though people are saying it's not a policy priority, we also see it as being very, very influential in terms of mobilization. And in terms of, of um vote choice. So Latino Decisions, which is sort of the one of the um premier Latino polling firms that's run by a number of of, of top scholars, they have consistently polled in 2012 and 2016. And when majorities of the Latino community are saying that immigration policy has been a determinant of their vote choice and the election. So even though we're not seeing it, people saying it that it's a policy priority, it's very clearly um has this influence over mobilization and participation in a way that other issues don't.
0: so it's it, it is it is in fact a paradox, as mm-hmm. you note. Mm-hmm. um and interesting in terms of politics and in not being a priority and yet also being a priority. Um, which is always fascinating for all of us. um, And it's all of our intersectional selves in lots of ways too. Um, So I have a question for you in terms of this is a great project and you concluded it, you know, at a time when immigration was rising um, in discussions. Uh, And so my question is, what are you working on now? Are you continuing to explore immigration um and identity politics, or are you looking at some other issues in your research?
1: Well, I have a few different projects I'm working on now. one with a colleague, Emily Ferris at TCU. We're looking at images of immigrants, so the way that the media portrays immigrants and immigration over time. Um, so that's my immigration focused project, and then I'm looking at a very totally different topic um in vitro fertilization and thinking about different um attitudes as uh, different attitudes that people have about in vitro fertilization but also looking at differences based on um, race ethnicity and gender so not completely stepping away from that piece of it and then a third project that I'm working on with another colleague looks at um quite quite different from this looks at people's Um, The the role of of parenthood and and whether or not having children or having daughters influenced people's attitudes about the 2016
0: candidates. Oh, that's fascinating. So when one of these three projects turns into a book, will you come on the New Books Network again and talk to us about it?
1: I would love to. Thank you
0: so much. Excellent. Thank you for joining me today, Heather Silber-Muhammad, to speak about the New Americans, Immigration, Protest, and the Politics of Latino Identity. Heather, where can somebody get a copy of your book?
1: Um, You can find it on Amazon. You can find it um, from the University Press of Kansas. I'm sure they'll have copies at ATSA, so you can find it anywhere you
0: like. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network, and I look forward to talking to you when you complete your next project. Thanks again, Lily,
1: for having me. I appreciate it.
0: My pleasure.